don't think cyber, I'm going to say, will ever be cheaper than it is today. Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. The voice you've just heard is Dan Truman, Global Head of Cyber at Axis Insurance. Now, unless you really haven't been paying attention, cyber insurance has been the global growth story of the last decade. In fact, it's grown so far and so fast that there are really very few people who you could identify as market veterans. And that's because hardly anyone's been working in the class for long enough to qualify. Luckily enough for you, Dan is one of the true market pioneers with a 20-year career that has always been centred on ensuring unconventional enterprise risks. Dan's an expert and a cyber evangelist. He wouldn't say it, but he's effectively an industry spokesperson and an ambassador for the cyber class globally. You'll also find that he's not only very smart and polished, but he's also really good company. In our wide-ranging discussion, we got to the heart of what has triggered the explosion in cyber growth. We talked about the latest in price, demand and loss trends. And we also dissected all the innovations around cyber modelling and the work that's going on to maximise the reinsurance and alternative capital that can be brought to bear on this potentially systemic global risk so that its growth story can continue. We also looked at regulation and the thorny issue of a silent or non-affirmative cyber cover, as we call it. I really enjoyed our talk, and I'm sure you will too. My first question was to ask Dan to tell you a bit about himself, how he got into cyber underwriting, and what Axis is up to in the space. I was really lucky. I suppose when I first started the industry 20 years ago, you know, ones and noughts and, and the challenges they have were still sort of emerging. I mean, we just, we were going through Y2K at that point. So cyber risk itself. Were you at, uh, was that uh, Kiln, at Kiln, pre-Tokyo Marine? In, in those, yeah, yeah, pre, yep. pre-Tokyo Marine. Um, and I, you know, I started classically as a, as a graduate trainee, um, and did the, you know, what was it, the time at Kiln, we did lots of three-month rotations, um, became very experienced filing clerks, um, and I was really lucky, and I, I settled with with a couple of actually fantastic um, bosses, um, you know, Charles Franks, uh, you know, Robert Chase, and, and Paul Cullum, particularly actually at Kiln at the time, really I've taken under their wing and, and became a political risk underwriter, and really luckily didn't sort of focus purely on political risk and, and looking at sort of, you know, but actually started focusing on supply chains and looking at what was a, the product at the time, trade disruption insurance. And what we'd done there was change sort of the concept of insurable interest from sort of physical loss, physical damage to an asset. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and it said um, enterprise risk, which of course, you know, was a classically sort of uh, yeah. you know, forbidden, forbidden fruit of insurance. And it's exactly that, was to try and look at this idea of actually changing it from... What was you know what, what actually keeps businesses awake at night? Can I generate revenue? To what businesses are told to keep them awake at night? You know, are the bricks and mortar going to survive around me? And as we know, that's the same story we're seeing. You know, it's great playing out in the world now, and hence cyber underwriting becoming so that bricks to clicks type of issue was the same thing we were facing as an industry. And I, I think one of the the reasons I think this is such an amazing industry and it, and it will always have relevance we know that because businesses can't take on risk without the social value of insurance being there to protect them but I do think we need to keep keep innovating and keep supporting as an industry that fundamental concept which is what are the risks that businesses are facing and it isn't always you know it was yeah you mark you know we've just been discussing you know no longer need to be wedded to an office to be able to produce what you're producing that's a great in a microcosm what we're seeing around the world and so as people are more and more you know reliant on the ones and noughts in order to build and and generate things fundamentally the risk they're facing is the same and so that's almost in a microcosm has been my journey in in insurance has been as that risk has emerged we initially called it enterprise risk and within the enterprise risk we weren't just looking at the cyber we were looking at reputational risk in, in its first instances and trying to look at that as a business interruption type risk um, and also looking at intellectual property. Because yeah, I remember as a broker, I remember um, coming in as a broker in 1992 and seeing this little dusty policy in the corner that said computer crime and I thought it was really exciting because I was just a recent graduate and thought, wow, that's amazing. 
what what is that? And and someone said, well, yeah, we've never sold one of those in a hundred years of having it. And um, but w- when was actually the point when uh, you th- saw that cyber was going to work as a product line? And you'd start calling it cyber when you'd you'd sold something substantial and 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 you were suddenly on risk and and you thought you suddenly had a business. And I think that's again. So there were there are a number of sort of key moments in the cyber journey. Uh, the first key one is, is a, a piece of legislation called Graham Leach Bliley, which um, was enacted in 1999, which was the first sort of fundamental. We've all had a common law, right? Because that sounds like a US. That is a US piece of legislation. Because they always have two surnames, don't they? It, yeah. yeah, yeah, they keep sort of adding them through, and, and whoever sponsors it through gets it, you know. But this, it, again, like, we all have a common law right to have information kept private. You know, that's that's been enshrined, uh, you know, yeah. I suppose, you know, for us, certainly since, you know, Various of uh, the government over was heavy-handed in in the sort of the late 1600s. You know, we've had that within constitution. The same thing within the amendments within the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing the right to free speech. Exactly the same sort of fundamental be- background. When the government overacts, um, you know, so does the law in terms of, of enshrining that right. So that's existed. But for the first time, what actually happened was encoded within statute was this idea that personally identifiable information. So information that defines a person, their name, their social security number, ID number, passport number in our our instance, is personally identifiable. And if that is breached by an organisation, not only is there a common law right to deal with the liability of that breach, they actually had to do something about it. For the first time legislation, so that was in 1999. So that sort of created this idea. I I admit at the time we were still focused, you know, my background at Kiln, really on the first party elements, what is the loss of revenue? So not that privacy, and I sort of have to use that word because obviously privacy, privacy depends on what side of the Atlantic I'm on. It's one of those, uh, you know, nations divided by a common language You, you can say privacy here, it's okay. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just, uh, just checking uh, in case your international listenership. Um, so I, I, we had this sort of classic um, idea. Then in 2004, the same sort of um, was encoded within healthcare within the US, um, what was called um, HIPAA, Healthcare Information Privacy Protection Act. Um, and that sort of actually, that was, I think, always sort of marked that as the real kickoff, that we had a market. So suddenly, not only was it financial institutions had to look at their personal identifiable information, now healthcare organisations had to look. And by definition, both of those types of organisations carry quite a lot of private and sensitive information so they and particularly in the US and, and this is the classic challenge and this is one of the reasons why this market in the London has been so successful is because we've always taken risks from the US and, and, and transferred it um, in the development of privacy legislation it's a classic example of the, you know the US sneezing and the rest of the world eventually catching that cold I mean we, we've got the is, flu is the cold GDPR then? I think well that's the flu uh, I think you know GDPR really is is something sort of you know uh, rather rather more aggressive than, uh, than, than, a, than a sort of mild head cold um, and rightly so um, you know we'll just come back to that in a second but you know th- this idea of legislation creating the market is really key because it does enable organisations to start looking at their own risk and understanding that the government's legislating about it. The reality is, I think cyber is going to continue to grow as organisations themselves work out what they need to do outside of legislation and look at their own business models and understand that they need to re-look at how they're transferring their risk. Yeah, I mean, how, how does it stack up at the moment? Obviously, you mentioned about that um, you were looking at first parties sort of loss of revenue, effectively business interruption type stuff. Um, you talk about effectively describing breach response which we know that Beasley really took up and ran mm-hmm. with and that was the first time as me as a journalist that I saw something that had the word cyber in it uh, in, it was in a Beasley analyst presentation and it had a quite a big number attached to it it was about six or seven years ago the first time that I thought oh wow we better pay attention to this uh, and then how else did, how much is actual genuine liability business of, of uh, within cyber you know, so how do each 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 parts sort of stack up the kind of the statutory sort of duty to inform people there's been a breach and sort of try and make good in some way? Mm-hmm. Uh, the liabilities of perhaps the software engineer who caused the the breach in the first place, or somebody who did something wrong, uh, and the first party. Do you know how does it stack up out of the hundred percent? Which how much is each? Obviously, there's there's an allocation of each. I think the challenge is there's always been this really uncomfortable relationship within cyber between this idea of first and third party. You know, you hold someone's information, you thus create a liability in holding that information. 
The reality is the statute tends to look at notification as the way to rectify any breach. Doesn't, yes, in the fullness of time, if there are actual damages, which have proved quite difficult to prove, then the you know the state's attorneys general in particular have been very interested in finding some way to sort of fine and punish people. So there's a liability held there. And there's, there's a lot of um, and you're able to cover a lot of these fines. Yeah, within the US in in that situation there is you know coverage. GDPR is much more problematic because underlying legislatures still you know deem fines and penalties to be contrary to public policy. So that typically is the way we have to look at that. Um, I always think there's a the classic comma where insurable by law is not an exclusion by proxy, it's keeping us out of prison. Uh, is, is the point is in many instances we are not legally able to cover certain things. Um, and I think that's always a really important sort of point to make. I think, you know, what I've just really important to come back to the idea of the, what the coverage, in most instances it costs a lot of money to notify people. I mean, you know, there has been, thankfully in certain instances, some claims deflation. How many sort of dollars is it per, per, per head? Presumably, the if the higher the number, it does go down. A, I presume it's economies of scale, right? Yeah, and by definition, uh, there's a range, and, and it again depends on the total population, the number of people that actually. So typically, you have to tell them there's been a breach, and then offer them some form of rectification. Not all people will always take up that, you know. And particularly, we're sort of at a breach lassitude point in in certain instances. That's almost the sort of the other side of this effect. With everyone being notified of every breach, and that actually a lot of people have been notified of a lot of breaches now which is a problem. And this is the point, is the disappointing fact of all this is organisations aren't necessarily changing their habits, keeping information more secure, or fundamentally still putting the, the right protections in place. And, and we see such a range of behaviours. I mean, the best ones are phenomenal. Um, and, you know, the, the worst ones are still sort of, you know, really quite problematic. Let's sort of really get stuck into the the state of the cyber market today. Obviously, there's been uh, the product's been taken up. It's been a, the growth story of the last five years. Um, you know, every young underwriter's probably wanted to, you know, wanted to go and become a cyber underwriter if they, you know, they, they would dream of doing so uh, as a way of getting ahead in their career. But over the last couple of years, we've had some quite high profile losses. Uh, ransomware seems to have been, uh, you know, a big a problem. Uh, run us through what's happening, uh, and has there been a little bit of hardening in price as well? We're certainly seeing uh, price start to move the right direction. I think for a long time we had the classic sort of supply demand curve working against us. As uh, you know, I want to say ten years ago, you know, there were sort of fifty people, you know, sort of fifty organisations probably underwriting cyber. There's now five hundred globally plus. You know, the reality is, the other the other frustration I suppose there were there wasn't ten people in each of those fifty, so there's a lot of people new to the market. You know, leading teams. One of the classic challenges. One of the reasons why you know we have this other supply demand curve for the young underwriters, and they're all, uh, you know, in there looking for careers. It's fantastic. It's fantastic to watch the talent that's coming in. I've actually been really excited by that. But we need it. There is an absolute dearth of experience in the market still, which is a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, which will always continue. So there is a, a logical, as the events are coming up, as we're starting to see more, certainly, I don't think cyber, I'm going to say, will ever be cheaper than it is today. And I think that comes from two fundamentals. One, there's, you know, the coverage still has yet to set around a sort of commoditized basis in terms of, you know, always new ways of looking at it, new ways of looking at the underlying risk. I don't necessarily think we're suddenly going to change um, extremely. I think we've sort of started to come up with something, but... The other side of it is, you know, you, you talk about ransomware is a really good example. I mean, how bad has it been? Uh, it seems, has it been the loss of 2019, hasn't it? Or, or is it, is it a really just like a standard attritional loss now, like a trip and fall or something? I, it's certainly, what, what's changed is back in the day, you know, the bad guys would have to go and do quite a lot of recon. Um, they'd have to work out what their vulnerability was. They'd have to work out who had that vulnerability. And they'd have to find a way in to exploit that vulnerability. And then they'd have to take the payload out and then they'd have to go and cash that out. The alternative now, they go on the dark web, they find someone who's willing to sell them an exploit, you know, a commoditized ransomware, and then they just hit that at scale, and they don't know cashing out is direct. You know, some Bitcoin. So these, yes, of course, I suppose these people, are, uh, uh, as technology advances, these are, t these are te technological criminals and they're advancing even as fast as they possibly can. And, Agreed. And they're automating everything they're in, that they're doing. If we're digitising, so are they. 
Yeah, and so so that classic. I mean, I also think it's really important to point out it's not a totally asymmetric battle. I think the assumption has always been that the bad guys are always running faster. I, there are times, a when the systems catch up. There are certainly organisations that are proving themselves capable of avoiding these challenges. So it's not totally asymmetric, but you're absolutely right. I mean, fundamentally, the bad guys are trying to find new exploits. So would you say it's fair that we get into a maturing phase, presumably early days, uh, you were making quite a lot of money, and that that um, would have attracted the attention of other people in the market to say, wow, look at these loss ratios, they're fantastic. And now are the loss ratios approaching something that's far more sort of... Uh, you know, the producing combined ratios that are much nearer to 100 or, or perhaps above occasionally, that, uh, that it, you could say it's a matured market? I, I think the reality has always been the market's had volatility. I mean, there, you know, there's always been some big losses in the market. We go back to the late 2000s, we had Heartland Data Systems, you know, TJX. There were, there were some large losses in the market and there weren't very big books. So I think this assumption that cyber's been this sort of, you know, always run well is flawed um and i think it's one of those things that people you know good good underwriters have always managed to make good money in in any market um you know in any class and i think you know cyber shares that same issue you still need to have fundamental sort of ways of doing things you need to be very conscious very focused and keep your what it is that is good underwriting is probably i think one of the other things is probably more shared by cyber underwriters with all the other classes, then is a difference. It's a point of parity, not a point of difference. But it's would you just would it, is it fair to describe it as maturing in terms of the sort of income that you're able to generate now, and and, and is that income also uh, kind of repeatable, and you feel it's quite solid? You know that it's going to be there and renew. I think that's next fair. Year I and think you know it's going to be around. You know, well, I think there's two sort of fundamentals. What we you know we looked at the legislation earlier. Most of that legislation originally focused on industries that kept kept sensitive information and the two big ones obviously financial institutions healthcare a lot of the breaches also then happened to retailers so that's what we used to call the big three so fi's healthcare retail and those are the people who bought cyber because they kept all this information and thus they had a you know a liability what we're now seeing is it's not just those three if, if i looked five years ago they'd probably be 60 70 percent of the book they're now less than 45% of the book, those those three. So the other industries are catching up. I suppose I, I could think, just at the top of my head, I could think of a credit credit agency, you can talk of a, a, a UK ISP, uh, you know, broadband provider, and mm -hmm. um, the world's largest logistical firm. So, yes, it's quite varied, I suppose. Massively um, varied. And airlines and gone yeah, around. Airlines, right? um, you know, certain uh, foreign exchange organisations. Um, you know, I think we, we've certainly seen, you know, the breaches and, and the places the breaches are happening isn't just you know in healthcare uh, it isn't just i mean we, where they tend to happen it's what we sort of call window lock theory though is they do tend to happen at scale and with frequency where maybe the vulnerabilities are, are systemically low um where under investment and the classic example is when I mean, the nhs um had had its challenges you know through the wanna cry issue and there's a really good example where unfortunately if your decision is can i invest in a you know a new mri system for my hospital or cyber security and no one's asked me the right questions about that well i'm going to go for mri because that's where the you know they're still running windows xp or whatever and frankly you know there lies the point you know because you can't invest in a new mri your previous mri hasn't is still running on software when you bought it 20 years ago there lies the challenge i mean you know we talked about my you know, early career, I was sort of thinking about that actually, funnily enough, the the other day, and I was remembering, you know, systems based on MS-DOS as we uh, we would come in, you know, and we had to, in order to move through the screens for a data entry, we had to remember three or four, you know, letter codes. That was, you know, the only way you could move from one screen to another is remember this was an EDDC screen. So those sort of fundamentals are still in some industries. Um, obviously, this fast growth, um, Growth is a great way of kind of running away from your problems. Uh, do you think any of the fast growth, this fantastic fast growth, has it has it masked or hidden any underlying problems in within the cyber market? I I think I th it's a really good question. I I don't think it's necessarily hidden any issues. Not with people who get it, but I think what it has done is it's allowed people to forget to invest in certain issues, and I think. 
the really good people haven't forgotten that and they have been looking at modeling properly they have been looking at understanding it they have been building across the broader value chain and not just focusing on the here's a product here's a price for that product you know and i think that's been the difference and i i what worries me is we've ended up because of that growth the supply demand has been artificial so there's been lots of entrants that maybe haven't necessarily added to the general positivity and the right behaviors and i think that's more the challenge and is the it's is the market um are there any potential constraints on on growth perhaps from i'm thinking about reinsurance capacity mm-hmm. um are, are we getting to that point is presumably demand is still up year on year uh healthily so uh, as the product awareness uh, becomes mm-hmm. you know greater and, and, and the threat becomes more obvious and apparent uh, day by day um but are there any potential constraints on, on growth? I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, how, are we getting, are we, are we going to be hitting the buffers in terms of uh, of growth? Is it also human capital as well? Um, you know, you, both sides of it, mm-hmm. actual real capital. Uh, yeah. Uh, is, is it a struggle to, 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 to get the sort of limits that some of these really big corporates are going to want to buy? Uh, and also the systemic event limits. Anyway, there's a lot of questions all in one go. But yeah, I was about to say, to say about so say, many questions. I, I, we're sitting, that'll, that'll get us done for the next five to ten minutes, I think. That's brilliant. Well, if, I, if I go off on a tangent, please bring me back on, on to us. <laughs> any, any of those questions. I'll start with the human capital because I, I, we started looking at that earlier. It, it is, you know, things that keep me awake at night. You're doing a lot of that, aren't you? I mean, you're doing we are training. desperate. I mean, we had over two 2,000 people go through a course we run last year alone, um, which is fantastic. Uh, we developed that ourselves. It's but that's your, your, you're educating your brokers as well. Massively, and, and our reinsurers. So in order <laughs> right. to try and deal with that capacity, uh, we have a lot of our reinsurers go through that course, which is fantastic. We'd rather they, you know, they understand the risks fully. Um, same thing as, you know, clients we do a lot of tabletops with clients which we again we built ourselves in fact I, I came down from from the team actually looked like they were playing snap but actually what they were doing was they were distributing roles for for you know the hr person the ceos and the, the cards what role to play for a a, um, a role-playing tabletop exercise upstairs so we've built our own um, fundamental process we've just published a book uh, 35 views of cyber uh, which is fantastic. So, you know, we, we think this is a problem that can't be dealt with with just one way of looking at it. You need at least, you know, multiple views. That, that came from the uh, classic Hokusai print of, uh, you know, the Great Wave um, and the view there that, that actually what people don't know, that was actually a view of Mount Fuji, not a view of a wave. And it came from a, a print work called 36 Views of Fuji. So we decided we couldn't go as many views as the master. So we came up with 35 views, and, and the idea really is, is to take cyber as a central proposition and move around it and see it from different angles and see what this risk is doing, whether that's at a public policy level, whether that's at a, a firm's own protection level, whether that's the idea of, of how we need to evolve the, the constraints, um, what we call the, the problem of the squid. Uh, and I'll come on to that. So do you think you're keeping up you're keeping up with um, your own demand for as you grow to have enough staff and enough staff who are well trained enough to be able to train others and uh, or is it just a constant fight or you you're getting there i think we i think what's really exciting is we're able to frankly I don't know, underwriting talent in my view is a slightly more fungible than people think it is um, I, you know, this idea that if you're a hull underwriter, you're a hull underwriter for life, and some random decision you made at the beginning of your career has meant that you will never get to look at something else. We've proved that that isn't necessarily the case. We think we can teach people specific technical skills about cyber that they need to know, but we can find underwriters, and there's some fantastically talented underwriters that, that are actually, you know, currently as the market is looking at some of the other classes, perhaps that are looking at, you know, at a nice moment in their career, they're, they're willing to be looking where they are. And uh, we brought some brilliant people through on the other side. So that's fantastic. Not least with the, the focus, the London market's looking at the affirmation of risk and affirmation of cyber risk and this idea of, you know, dealing the end of, of non-affirmative or silent cyber. It's been brilliant to have people with experience in property damage and hull underwriting, etc., come onto the team so we can actually add some value there. Right, and what about you know um, what about actual com- potential capacity constraints? As you know, we build up, you try and build towers up to you know billion dollars or whatever to be meaningful for a big Fortune one thousand customer or a FTSE one hundred, you know, customer. Um, how important is um, you know h- what are the advances? Was reading every day about new investments in sort of insure tech, um, cyber modelling businesses. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and obviously, you've got this absolutely systemic risk, absolutely dynamic risk. It's never the same. You know, uh, if I take a satellite image of uh, of, of um, beachfront houses in Florida, generally, you know, I mean, you, you know, you look every two or three years, there'll be more houses generally than there were last time you looked, but they're still there. They're still made of brick and the, or whatever it is, or concrete or whatever. And I can see that it's got a slate roof or whatever, and and that risk hasn't changed necessarily, other than you know the world's changed a little bit, but it's fairly static. But, you know, your risk is, you know, it's sort of there's an upgrade in some, you mm -hmm. know, database or whatever or an operating system and the patch hasn't gone out or there's a mistake or something. It's completely dynamic all the time. Um, how far, how, how much more comfortable are reinsurers getting with the sort of event limits that they're putting out uh, with your own reinsurance? Uh, you know, or are we, are we getting close to a point where we just can, you would say, actually, we can't do any more because uh, we can't put out any more limits. I think, yeah, I mean, it's a really, really, it is the thing, it genuinely that does keep me awake at night, is is understanding how we make sure we maximise the capacity in the market. Um, and I think we go back to insurance 101, you know, what we should learn on our, you know, on on the, the knee is we're, we're learning is aggregation, is making sure we manage our, our exposure and aggregation. And systemic risk, um, is obviously the way we define aggregation within a cyber sense. This idea that there are single points of failure that are shared across multiple organizations um, is something that is a genuine constraint and needs to be looked at. The challenge we've had, and it comes back to this investment idea, is understanding actually what the return periods for some of those those issues are. You know, So one of the big cloud server providers you know, is in reality is probably the systemic risk, the failure of one of those. What is the genuine return period? And the assumption that that's one piece of software is the flawed assumption there. You know, so you know the reason these things don't fall over every day is because they're not one piece of software. It's multiple versions of the same software. It's sharded or, or sent off in different ways so it can back each other up. And, uh, and I presume every company is slightly different that they're running one thing on another thing with another thing with another thing. Mm -hmm. And actually, the you know there's actually surprisingly fairly unique combinations of software. Uh, with operating systems, right? You're going to be a cyber underwriter, you know, anytime soon. So I think this is this is something not everyone. It's and I promised you not to get too cyber geekery here, but it's what we call logical disaggregation. The reality is everyone's running slightly different versions of the same thing. Because I say, yeah, it's sort of like, but well, it's presumably it's DNA, isn't it? We're all Homo sapiens, we got arms and legs, and, mm -hmm. and eyes and nose and, and mouth and stuff, but but we all look different, and everyone's different. And I think this is it's, it's the recombinative, you know, versions of that is how those are put together. So, we, so that's actually comforting. So we're not as systemically exposed as we thought we are. There's a lot more individuality and, uh, you know. Vulnerability over here, but not all vulnerability over there. It's the way that's configured and what you're doing with it is is the key difference. And I think that's one of the challenges. And when we look at some of these modeling firms that emerge, they, for me, the focus has been too much on the front end. They've been too much of what we call, you know, trying to solve the outside in problem, understanding what this risk is in terms of its general profile versus that risk. What actually keeps me awake at night, we can ask questions about that and we can define good behaviours. So actually we're doing some work on that and I'd love to explore that in a second. Presumably now you do a lot of that, a lot of the tools are sort of happening, they're sort of sniffing around and doing that automatically, aren't they? Or Absolutely, and you can definitely picture the, one of the key aspects of that actually, when you look at some one of the, the big things that does make organisations fundamentally better is how quickly they patch. When you look at these new uh, and patching cadence is almost one of the greatest behavioural issues. You know, things that patch quicker are better risks. So we can do that. We can find that out. What version of this software are you running and how how most recently was that version released? That's something actually you can find. You're just one of these people who makes me shut my computer down every <laughs> night and start in the morning. <laughs> you? And then it even says updates halfway through the day. Luckily enough, your computer does this for you now. You know, most of these most of these fairly basic sort of fundamentals are just, just press on that button, yes, and, it, and it'll sort it out for you. And I, you know, and I think this is, ironically enough, this is one of the advantages we see with the small, medium-sized enterprises is typically, you know, particularly home-based businesses, for instance, they're run off, you know, one single laptop. You're not, you're not, and you will replace that laptop. Your replacement cycle isn't the same as the NHS's replacement cycle on a, you know, on a CAT scanner. It's literally two, three years. And thus, your likelihood of running an unsupported piece of software is almost minimal. And so, provided you do the basic hygiene things, actually risk can be reduced. And that's sort of actually, when we look at cyber underwriting in its sense, when you look at it at scale, 
it's actually reasonably easy to identify what basic hygiene looks like. Unfortunately, not all organisations are following it. Do you think on the on that cyber modelling side, um, are we going to get an, an RMS sort of Equicat uh, <coughs> Verisk style, uh, you know, air air worldwide uh, third party vendors? coming in and, and sort of being coming the industry standard or is it going to be a lot of proprietary stuff but or is it a bit of both i think it's going to be a bit of both i think like almost like what about the, the, what's the access wave are you doing you're doing a lot of your own right? literally yeah and a bit of both though so you know you have to test it against the standardized model because by definition we're trying to buy some reinsurance and, and there's a standardized way that's been looked at but fundamentally while those models are still in development we would rather test ourselves and ask ourselves the uncomfortable questions because we believe with the investment we're making and there's a huge amount of investment we're putting into this and the great team that sits around this side of things is trying to understand that and challenge ourselves because actually I'd rather you know if the answer is by the way this is more exposed than we thought it is we need to put our pens away that's a good answer to know we'd rather know that answer and be very comfortable knowing that answer than we would the other way around and, and that's always been the approach we've taken. That's good. Well, you sound really confident, actually, which is which is very encouraging. So I wouldn't. I mean, let's be you know, sort of not not overly confident. I think that the challenge is, by definition, we don't think there's a certainty about it. We do keep testing our. It's the old Maynard Keynes quote. You know, I define my hypothesis, and if my information changes, I redefine my hypothesis. And and so what we're constantly doing is stating our hypothesis and testing it. And I think that's the challenge. And on that subject, um, do you think? Uh, we're overdue a big cyber cat sort of clash event that just suddenly because I wanted to go back to that you mentioned about the silent cyber mm -hmm. risk you know being addressed partly as, as here in London it's being addressed partly top down by the regulators uh, you know by Lloyd's and by the PRA um, what about um, do you think we're going to get this big cyber cat loss that perhaps you know it's underwriters occasionally sort of uh, uh, wish for perhaps and then they regret that they ever wished for it when it finally does happen do you think that's going to happen i i think look, the reality is the we're kind of watershed loss that <coughs> finally defined cyber has to be excluded from all the other things it should never have been included and in, always left silent in you know the power plants and mm -hmm. all the other places where it might crop up it, uh, do you think that's going to happen or not are you sort of a believer in that i think i think it, 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 it will happen i think you know we're pricing for it assuming it's going to happen the reality is it's the challenge is, is being consistent with what we think the return period on that event is. And I think therein lies the challenge. We we certainly know there's a huge amount of potential exposure in the tail, you know, for for want of a, a less mathy term. But perhaps perhaps in the world of the dark web, but surely once it's happened, then it can happen again a hundred times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, the there you after. go, the exposure. I mean, you know, I think the challenge is... Uh, if some of those doomsday scenarios happen, we'll all be sitting at home with with baked beans, and and it won't happen the next day. No, you're probably right. Um, so in general, um, you're happy that um, you're staying relevant to your clients, that the capacity is able to increase um, uh, to keep those big big customers happy, so that you're providing a limit to them that is relevant, and we don't end up in the kind of beep. I describe it as the BP problem, where mm -hmm. before the Macondo. BP said. In fact, we, we ended up having Tony Hayward speaking at uh, a conference uh, mm, we organised uh, after after um, you know after the Deepwater Horizon Macondo loss, and, and and obviously inevitably was asked, why didn't you buy more insurance or any insurance? And he said, well, you couldn't provide me with anything that was relevant. You know, I had a forty billion dollar loss, and you would have given me a billion, and we'd probably still be arguing about it now. Uh, we'd be in the High Court and mm -hmm. Supreme Court, uh, and he probably wouldn't have paid, is what he said. <laughs> Um, it's a reputation issue are, for the industry. You, uh, uh, for some of those massive corporates, you, you know, I think that's you more a that? challenge. I, I think we can, and I think the limits are getting there. Um, I think I would suspect, if not this year, certainly next year, we'll see a billion-dollar cyber tower. Um, and I think whilst that isn't as much insurance as, as the large corporates are buying in some it's of their other towers, it's getting to a point where it's relevant. Um, can we do that? We look to, you know. I think in general about 50% on average we think of the Fortune 500 are buying cyber insurance. So that's where the penetration is and I think the reason they're buying it isn't necessarily this idea that you know I think there's DNO exposure here. Not only understanding a risk it's going through the process and then if you know that there's a risk transfer option available 
then deciding not to transfer it has its own challenges. And I, I think that that is also a, a driver of that. On the other side of it, on the SME side, I think the penetration is, you know, is far, far you know, lower than that. I mean, there are well, you know, millions of, of SMEs coming from, you know, sort of one-man home-based businesses all the way through to, you know, 20, 30 employees, you know, that sort of scale. Globally, there are millions of businesses, and I rather suspect probably only a couple of hundred thousand, maybe, maybe more, are buying cyber insurance. So, you know, the penetration is, is significantly lower on that side than it, than it probably should be. One thing, last thing on the kind of capacity uh, question is been a lot of talk about ILS and you're sitting in a, a, a global organization that that runs capital sort of all the way from the original risk uh, th- all the way up to the capital markets with ILS mm-hmm. within the access uh, organization um we've had we've had a lot of talk about getting ILS involved in cybercat perhaps mm-hmm. it, is is that just talk or is there anything really likely to happen yeah well we we've, we've seen some we've seen certainly uh, the the green shoots of that particular issue i think it's a relevant thing it also gives that that reinsurance ca- capability and capacity for those tail tail events as well the challenge is for to my mind is defining the return period you know there is a liability element to cyber uh, and consequently the tail is slightly longer than ils you know would typically like and so that's always been the issue however if you come back to the binary events did one of the cloud service providers fail or not fail, then the ability to suddenly go actually, you know, whether it's a parametric or whether it's something else, it's you can probably come up with something and be creative and, and do the right thing. And that's, I think, the area we're probably going to see the first genuine ability to transfer some of that risk. Right, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, we've been speaking about cyber being such a dynamic risk. Um, you know, I go to a lot of insurtech events. Um, we talk about you know um, people with sort of black boxes in their cars and telematics, and and it occurred to me um, if cyber is really dynamic, could it be lend itself to dynamic pricing? Some kind of description. I love that. I think you, you're. I mean, I genuinely think that that. But must would anyone be, buy it? That's the question. I think the problem is, would we be able to run the credit control to make sure that the pricing was as dynamic as it could be? You know, if you take that to its fullest event, just the sh- sheer practicalities, you've put this system in place, or you've patched your system, thus your insurance should be cheaper. Just running that, or just you know, is one of the limitations. But if we excuse that that problem, I think fundamentally the really exciting thing about this data is how do we turn data in, in, into information and information to insight that's what we're constantly trying to do you know that's sort of the classic triangle of the events with the more data we have the more insight we've got you know we can potentially generate the challenges and i think this is the issue with cyber and you know we started getting there earlier i think is this idea that yesterday's events aren't necessarily you know totally predictive of tomorrow's events because what we're not doing is looking at the, the null results. You know, we have insurers that have three and a half billion attacks a day. You know, if you define attack as some form of, of, you know, whether it's a spam email or some form of potential intrusion into their system. We only then score them when they have the one that matters. Actually, the, the three and a half billion, you know, times 365 is really interesting. Why aren't those becoming actual events and causing the, you know, the catastrophe? And that's the data I'd love to capture and unpack better. And I, that's where the systems have got to go. Right, okay. Um, I want to talk about um, uh, cyber seems to me to be one of the classes of business that is as close to a service as 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 insurance gets, uh, particularly with things like the breach response and, and other things. And also that service of sort of helping with risk management where... Um, uh, you know where you, um, perhaps a lot of also a lot of carriers again are acquiring proprietary capabilities in the sort of mm-hmm. you know threat assessment and uh, understanding of clients' risk and helping them solve their problems before they become insurance problems and and that being part of the package. Uh, do you do you see that as something that's just going to continue and and it will end up sort of people will just sort of say, you know, I've got my cyber. It, but you you become embedded in someone's organisation to the point where you do their insurance, but you're really doing a ton of risk management on top. I'd love to see that, and I think it, there's a real value there. And again, it comes back to the value we as an you know as an industry add. You know what we should be there is is to manage risk in a broader sense, and and this is a really interesting risk because the clients learning about it as we go. The industry is changing. The the inherent nature of ones and noughts controlling everything we're doing is changing, and thus 
there's a real idea that actually we're on the same journey along the value chain, us and the clients we're insuring. And so actually, you know, we have the advantage. We have tens of thousands of clients versus one client. And so we can actually give huge amounts of insight back, huge amounts of, you know, what good hygiene factors look like, good behaviors look like. And we're doing, you know, lots of investment. And I think it's understanding that entire value chain is really important to me. So we, we sort of split that really into, I suppose, six fundamental factors. First, then education. I mean, just purely education. We talked about the courses and the thousands of people we've had through that. But it's also just unpacking the risk in a more general sense. Secondly, um, you know, it's understanding what does good, genuine good behavior look like. And we, we, we currently, we have a fantastic project we do with the University of Oxford. Um, you know, the Global Cybersecurity Capacity Center there. And, and I think they do an amazing job. And we actually, we sponsor sort of four postdocs and the time of, of two professors specifically looking at this, this risk. And I think they do an amazing, we've published a few white papers with them. Um, and we're going to continue doing so. That, that's a great project, and it's looking at what we call cyber value at risk. And if the value at risk, or CIVAR, I promise not to use too many uh, you know, TLAs, um, but I think you look at the value at risk and what compensatory controls could be in place, there's a really good project there. So what does a good organisation do? That's Then the real challenge is, that's all very well, but how do organisations guard the guards? So what is the second and third line of defence doing? So you're talking about a world in which um, a company might actually state what its cyber value at risk might yeah. estimate it to be, a, a bit, a bit you know, in the way that a bank or an investment vehicle um, would talk at its total value at risk, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for you know the stock market crash or something, and they might actually they might even become actually publicly available data in an annual report or something. It would make logical sense is actually to understand the how this risk is is stated, faced, and thus what compensatory controls are relevant to that particular type of value as well. So not all values are created equals. As you say, some of it's the fundamental idea of a stock market crash or reputational risk, physical risk, come back to the enterprise risk issue we were talking about earlier, the operational aspect of that. So you know, different risks for different organizations, different single points of failure for different organizations, and thus different organizations need to value those differently. So they need different compensatory controls. It's not all just updating the, you know, the system and pressing yes on that, that key on the, you know, when it, when it comes up, do you want to update your uh, antivirus software? Sometimes it's having two supply chains or two, you know, so we need to be assess this differently. But I think you're absolutely right. In the logical sense, if people are stating it, then we can actually look at what the downside is. And then it comes back to limits as well. Then the market can say, well, that's the average limit we need to transfer. So it's a mutually beneficial process. Um, again, on this sort of automatic, um, uh, you know, we've got Lloyd's, uh, you know, we're sitting just opposite Lloyd's, uh, Lloyd, uh, Lloyd, the future at Lloyd's, Blueprint One and all that stuff. Um, are you excited about some of those possibilities of uh, a sort of automatic underwriting? Uh, uh, and do you think, would you, would you, would you, would you see cyber as being obviously obviously being far more technologically advanced than other sectors of the marketplace? Do you think again it's ripe to be the the sort of uh, the, the player that would be adopt automatic, almost or semi-automatic underwriting quicker than any other uh, part of the subscription market? I think the challenge is 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 making sure we monetize the lead investment people are making, and that's always been the challenge with this idea of of you know the lead following the automation of the market. You know we have put huge amounts of investment, huge amounts of, of process into understanding this entire value chain and investing on different projects on every part of that value chain. The challenge is, in an automated function, can you make sure you're actually selecting the risk using that information you've generated? I think you probably should be able to and can, and, and thus, I think there's the massive potential for what's been done here, um, particularly in the London market with, with that process. And I, we're actually genuinely excited about it. I, I think, you know, lead follows what, what we've always done. I just think there's there are some, as we know, steps that need to be taken to define what that really looks like. Um, something I want to ask about is um, uh, we spend a lot of time writing and talking about uh, casualty. It's very front of mind at the moment. Uh, you're sitting within casualty. Um um, with in, and 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 you know we've got anecdotal evidence of um, you know certainly questioning of the solidity of uh, casualty reserves, particularly in the U.S. Um, we've got price action there. Um, how are cyber reserves sort of now that you've got a certain sense of maturity? You've got some big losses through the system, and some of them are very mature. 
how are they are they how are they bearing up are they, are they, are they, you know um, how do your actuaries sort of feel when they look at the triangles of your cyber performance obviously can't you know specifically mention no, 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 you know, no, no, not, 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 not as you a reserving but, actuary but myself but i do think as a leader yeah i think what's really important right is to remember this is that we talked about this earlier we, this idea this uncomfortable relationship between first and third party in cyber most of the time whilst we have a, a challenge what we call time to discovery you know so you there has been a hack knowing where that information has gone is often surprisingly long the period between you know payload leaving and people noticing payload has left that window is is increasingly coming down um and a sort of you know a, a decrease in window which is great so typically one of the nice things certainly when we're looking at reserving ibnr those sort of factors is actually in most instances we're paying first party type losses in terms of their relatively short tail that most of them are actually the cost of notifying the population so you know the per record cost of doing so so actually there's a little bit more consistency we're not necessarily we don't have the underlying pressures that some of the other elements of the liability and casualty market face okay and um how is the sort of um you know we've had a few high profile cases that of where from 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 looking from the outside it would look as if uh you know plaintiff lawyers have tried to sort of ram a loss through a policy that perhaps shouldn't really have responded in the cyber or was not intended to be a cyber uh, case do you think we're getting a better um definition and better uh, are we getting to a point where some of these um you know these cases are your test cases are starting to define what is a cyber loss and what isn't a cyberable loss uh better are you being more comfortable with all that kind of stuff I think, again, a lot of those are not necessarily the problem of the cyber market. I mean, the cyber market, by definition, has always covered cyber losses. The challenge we're obviously having is in the broader market. And I think this is where you, know, you talked earlier, the regulators have, have actually had a really positive impact here. They've been pretty clear about what they're saying in terms of if you're taking on risk and you are not definitively including something, then, you know, you may be accidentally including it. So, yes. Yeah, so be clear about whether you're including it or excluding it. If you are including it, actually, to make it fully affirmative, you also have to do something else, which is price for it. So, you know, that's the challenge. And, and so I think this idea of moving from non-affirmative or silent to affirmative really carries these two functions, which is be clear about the inclusion or exclusion if you're including price for it. Just a quick yes/no on that. Then um, you spoke earlier about um, you know perhaps the birth of cyber was again it was sort of top-down regulatory-led you know with the, with the, with, the, with the, those alleges that legislation. Um, do you think sort of black or white? Do you think it's going to be the regulators? Uh, you know the sort of the prudential regulators they're going to say, look guys, sort yourselves out, and you you've got a deadline to do it. Or do you think the industry will sort itself out? I'd rather think the industry is capable of sorting itself out. And I think maybe, luckily enough, with a slightly following wind, we have a slightly hardening market. I mean, I think, you know, we think it's probably probably better than that. Is, you know, I, what's been great is actually as that's happening, people are not necessarily tucking away issues. They're actually using this as the opportunity to do the right thing as well. The challenge is we're still really waiting for the big treaty reinsurers. They're the ones who have the, the, the probably the the lever to pull most, you know, enforcing an exclusion in a fundamental treaty would probably uh, focus minds better. It comes to the sort of Y2K moment. Uh, yeah, know. I think that's fair enough. And, you know, again, as I say, that market comes back. And, and this is the point, is that most markets actually within the insurance industry come from exclusions. You know, that's how they, they came about. You know, the, the political risk of the war market, fundamentally the same thing. Um, you know, if you look at, I think the political risk market came from sort of confiscations of vessels in Jakarta and, you know, sort of the, the, the 60s and 70s. I mean, these are the sort of, these are markets that evolved because the risk is noticed and it wasn't naturally either covered or it suddenly became excluded somewhere else. The same thing is, you know, the cyber market. I do think we've got to be careful, though, and, and sort of not beat ourselves up too much. I mean, the, you know, the Institute hold clause has been around for 300 years and they can't decide whether piracy is a peril of the sea or a war peril. So, <laughs> We've come a long way in a very short time as a cyber market. We've come a long way as a very short time in understanding this risk. I mean, we, it literally probably does go, I mean, obviously it's pre-Y2K, but Y2K is a good watershed for this market. And that was only 20 years ago. So it's a long way in a short time, but we've still got a long way to go. One last question would be, um, we're sitting in London. Is London um, the capital of cyber innovation or are there other places we should be looking? I think London has a very, very happy 
coincidence in the fact that a lot of really strong cyber underwriting teams have been here for a while. Um, there's a lot of people who've been doing cyber here in London for a while. And we have that classic clustering effect where, you know, the beauty of the London insurance market is it's a small market within 500 metres of each other. And thus everyone, you know, the ability to innovate quickly, effectively is driven. But I, you know, I'm very lucky I, I wear a global hat. I, I sort of spend as much time outside of London as in London. And I will be absolutely clear, you know, the US cyber market is brilliantly innovative, is doing great things, particularly maybe at the smaller end. Um and we're still starting to see a real growth in the market in Asia, in Australasia, and some really good underwriting talent emerging and some really good innovation in terms of the product. Because as we move away from these big three, financial institutions, retail and healthcare, to manufacturing, to physical loss, physical damage following cyber event, to you know broader um, types of coverage, then we're going to have to see innovation. As new buyers are buying it, wanting to transfer new risks, then fantastically the market is, is reacting to that. It's really positive. I think we're coming near to the end of our allotted time, and also, uh, I think I've asked you all the questions I want to ask. And but I need to ask you: Is there anything that you think we should have touched upon that we haven't yet um, before before we go? I just, for me, I think the classic. I just want to sort of get across. I mean, I love. I mean, you probably can tell. I'm absolutely passionate about what we do, and I've loved. You know, a being part of the insurance industry, but and b you know being able to to look at a risk and, and understand it and transfer it and, and deliver a great service for our clients. I'm really proud of actually what we do and, and actually the fact we follow through on the contractual obligations we create in delivering that service. But I do also think there's one. it's really important to remember the reason we sort of see that as part of the insurance industry is there are more points of parity between what we're doing than there are points of difference. You know, at the end of the day, it's an insurance contract of, of risk transfer. The clients have a risk. We're understanding that risk. We're evaluating you know, what the the price for transferring that risk and we're offering some transfer, you know, so which is the same as we do everywhere else in the industry. I think we sort of sometimes focus on the sort of, the you know, the innovative and those cyber guys. What, what The reality is actually we're doing what we should be doing and we're focusing what we should be focusing on and long may it last. And I think that's a really important point to make. Yeah, people still, they pay premiums and they get the losses paid, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, and thus we should be doing. The social value of what we do, you know, people understand their risk they're willing to transfer it, we're willing to take that risk. Well, Dan, thanks so much for uh, giving some of your valuable time uh, today. It's been fascinating. I'll make sure I'll book time in your diary to catch up with you again, you know, uh, at a time in the future. But thanks very, very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>